Hey there. Welcome to episode 9 of the Hansel and Gretel Code. So, after spending a good portion of our first eight episodes indoors, in the religion section of the library, today we're back outside, right in front of our fairy tale forest. And it's time for the second sentence of the story. In this sentence, we're going to learn something a bit more particular about our woodcutter's situation. And then we're going to be introduced to his little family. Just remember, at the end of today's episode, I'll tell you how you can get my copy of the fairy tale manuscript, for free of course, so you can follow along and know what's coming. Alrighty then, here are the first two sentences of our story. Es war einmal ein armer Holzhacker, der wohnte vor einem großen Wald. Es ging ihm gar jämmerlich, dass er kaum seine Frau und seine zwei Kinder ernähren konnte. Once upon a time, there was a poor woodcutter who lived before a great forest. He had it so rough, he could barely feed his wife and two children. Part 1 1 Loser! Well, now we know. Despite invoking Thoreau, the sublime, and the divine ecstasy of Unio Mystica, becoming one with God, turns out our bohemian woodcutter, the descendant of countless poverty-loving monks, nuns, free spirits, and New Age zealots, well, he isn't just humble and sincere. He really is near destitute. Ah. In following his calling and the still, small voice of the heart, he's apparently fallen victim to naive, wishful thinking. Instead of finding his bliss, he's found himself right behind the eight ball. And if that wasn't bad enough, he's selfishly put his entire family at risk of starvation. Well, do I need to say it? What a loser, right? How many practical-minded folk wouldn't just love to get in his face and repeat that famous mantra of the commonsensically clairvoyant? I told you so. Not to mention that cogent query of the infallibly streetwise. Hey, why don't you get a real job, you bum? Of course, you and I weren't thinking that way. We just know plenty of people who do. And like it or not, that line of thought might be something worth exploring. So before we get any deeper into the metaphoric underbrush, let's just look at his poverty as something we can all understand something we're all much more familiar with than that nonsensical voluntary variety. Except, mm, just a minute. Where did that hypercritical, judgmental attitude come from in the first place? And why should we even bring it up? (laughs) I don't don't know. (laughs) Part 2 Zwei Life lessons and library cards. 
Well, before I propose an answer to those questions, let me just share this brief snippet from a blog post about Hansel and Gretel. It's one that's pretty typical of what people tend to think about the meaning and purpose of the story. And just so you know, this isn't some random blog from someone who likes fairy tales. This comes from the official website of the New York Public Library. And I quote, Children can learn quite a bit from the story's young protagonists. What can be learned? Okay, so the author goes on to list eight typically orthodox things. And I just can't help it. That list kind of made me think of Pope Clement V's naughty eight list from his official condemnation of beggars and beguines that we came across back in episode eight. Eh, just saying. So what interests us here just happens to be the first thing on that blog list. Again, I quote, The story introduces children to the concept and reality of poverty. All right, fair enough. Except I got a bone to pick with that. Because I seriously doubt that any child growing up in poverty, and you got to figure the New York Public Library eh, probably sees way more than its share of them. Well, I doubt that any of those children need lessons in the concept and reality of poverty. And geez, the poor kids sure as hell don't need any further introduction to the topic. In fact, any poor kid from anywhere could probably teach that blogger a thing or two or three about poverty. Roger that. Now, on top of that, I also doubt that any kid whose family doesn't fit the description of poor or destitute wants to learn anything at all about poverty. And that's not because children are insensitive. Far from it. Children understand so much more than adults realize, especially when it comes to fairy tales, because children intuitively catch on to what's being said between the lines. In other words, they understand and accept the language of metaphor much more easily than adults. So I'm not saying that the adult who wrote that blog post is wrong, Eh, because that's neither here nor there. What I am saying is that its author completely ignored the concept of poverty as metaphor and chose to look at it strictly as commonsensically literal. So, let's find out if that's the right road to go down. Okay, but you go first. Part 3 Three. Tobacco Road. Well, first of all, unless we ourselves have had the experience of being dirt poor, we can't know what it feels like to be literally poor. Yeah, sure, we can all understand it as a concept. In fact, many of us boomers and Gen Xers, we've heard plenty about it from parents and grandparents who were bona fide Depression-era poor. And maybe we've even flirted with it ourselves by going into debt and fretting about it. Hell, some of us have even crossed the line of the official government definition, the federal poverty threshold, without becoming destitute and homeless. That's about it, though. So given those limits on our experience, 
let's at least look at what we all tend to associate with the idea of literal poverty, since that might be the key we need to understand where this fairy tale is leading us. All right, if you insist. I think we're all aware that in contemporary Western society, poor is another word for weak. And the poor aren't just considered weak. They do indeed lack power. They literally have very little spending or buying power, and certainly no political power. And while economic self-sufficiency is considered a sign of strength, uh, maturity, and responsibility, the poor are often viewed with suspicion, if not outright disapproval, since poverty might as well be a sign of moral weakness. That's correct. As I said in episode four, conservative opinion would have it that the poor are uneducated, lazy, and irresponsible people who lack all drive, ambition, or willpower, except when it comes to exploiting the system and getting something for nothing. Don't, don't say that. Liberal opinion is obviously different, hovering somewhere between sympathy, empathy, and pity. Yet nobody, not the strictest of conservatives or Mother Teresa herself, was born thinking this way. Whatever opinions we come to hold as adults, they came from lessons taught to us by the culture we were born into. And those are all compounded by life lessons. The most potent force that tends to change those opinions that comes from things we subsequently learn about our native culture. And so let me tell you, this story has so much more to teach us about Western European history and culture than anybody has ever dreamed. Johnny, is this true? Part 4 Fear Powerball Culture Consider the prevailing culture at the presumable time of our story, somewhere in the Middle Ages, when that mendicant, apostolic, voluntary poverty business was all the rage. The profusion of beggars, beguines, and free spirit groups they were tolerated and supported, if only up to a point. Sure, sure, begging, even for the sake of God and salvation, I couldn't help but offend the industrious sensibility of peasants and merchants. People forced to earn a living by the copious and diligent sweat of their brows. Yet, back then, every European Christian, meaning a vast majority of the populace, was so deeply concerned about their own prospects for eternal salvation the culture allowed for and fostered both the giving and receiving of alms as something of a guaranteed hedge against eternal damnation. That's awesome. It wasn't until the 16th century, with the Protestant Reformation and Calvinism's concept of predestination, that wealth came to be understood as a clear, heavenly sign of God's favor and inevitable salvation. And that made poverty a logically obvious sign of God's disapproval and inevitable damnation. Now, the story doesn't tell us why our woodcutter is poor. So as far as we know, 
it's possible that his poverty is self-inflicted and otherwise spiritually, morally, or even karmically deserved. That, that's bad. So is the story trying to tell us that he's morally bankrupt? I don't want to tell you. Hell, considering his eventual waffling over whether or not to abandon his two children, yeah, maybe that's all there is to it. Maybe. Except, I'm not buying it. Just think, this guy ends up being rich at the end of the story, and all he contributed to that accumulation of wealth, the jewels his two children bring back from the gingerbread house, was his decision to abandon them in the forest? Please. It's not only confusing, it's just too literal. A Calvinist rags-to-riches story, with him winning the lottery. Now, considering the fact that the Grimms themselves were Calvinists, is that all this story is about? An upside-down commentary on Calvinist theology, predestination, and the magic morality of a Powerball jackpot? Come on. Even if we consider winning the lottery to be an act of God, it's still just a literal matter of statistical improbability. Oh, well. And in all probability, this literal lack of money business is just a road that leads to an interpretive dead end. Oh, crap. Part 5 5 Connect the dots So let's try separating this guy's monetary problem from literal money and see if we can't connect it to something else. In other words, let's look at it as a metaphor. Well, okay. It doesn't cost us anything, and the payoff may be huge. I like that! All we have to do is connect some dots. And the dots in question lead us right to another metaphor we've already come across. Namely, the one based on that juxtaposition of forest and clearing we spoke about in episode 4. Huh? As a deliberately liminal, or borderline position, the fairy tale insists on, having the sky live right on the edge of the forest, well, sure, that reflects the financially precarious state of both the woodcutter and our own modern lower middle class. Hard workers who were often only one illness or accident away from outright poverty and homelessness. I know. And yet, here we are again. This is still too literal. It still ties poverty to money. Well, this is awkward. And insisting that the literal lack of money is all there is to know or say about this aspect of our story, well, it's got zero metaphoric punch. Yeah, so what? Well, unless we ourselves are or have ever been dirt poor, like this woodcutter family, it doesn't hit us where we live. No, no. See, metaphors are the building blocks of a fairy tale. And a fairy tale can't come alive and become universally known, loved, or even hated. Unless each and every one of its metaphors apply to us and the circumstances of our lives. Really? 
they got to hit home with each and every one of us. Otherwise, they're no more relevant than yesterday's news. Blah, 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 blah. See, if the story resonates, it's not because we've all had the same exact literal experience as the people in it. It's because we intuitively recognize ourselves in our own experience in the unspoken version of the story. The one that its metaphors are telling us. The story that's being told between the lines. Yeah. So let's see if we can't find the dots forming a metaphoric line that applies to just about every one of us. And not just lumberjacks living hand to mouth. You're scaring me. I think I've got one that might be a pretty accurate description of where most of us are. And not in terms of our financials, in terms of our everyday psychological state. Now let me tell you, I think this one is a real gut punch. Uh Uh-oh. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's get ready to rumble! Part six. Six. Liptards or deplorables? Going back to where we started, that metaphoric juxtaposition of forest and clearing, do you remember how we talked about the forest as being symbolic of the unconscious? No. And how that makes the clearing adjacent to it, the place our woodcutter lived, consciousness? Whatever. Well, on that basis, we can see his shaky financial status as a metaphor for his state of consciousness. Meaning... He's barely conscious at all. What? So, what does that even mean? We're obviously either 100% conscious and awake, or we're 100% unconscious, meaning asleep or in a coma. Well, the fairy tale is telling us a different story. It's telling us that there are degrees of consciousness that can be thought of or even measured the way we measure wealth. In other words, as rich, or adequate, or poor. And maybe because of the annoying and sanctimonious attitude associated with our own New Age rhetoric, I don't want to call this a measure of how woke he may or may not be. Why the fuck not? I'd much rather call it his state or level of awareness. Oh, very nice. Much better. Actually, given that there's the concept of woke... There's also the alternate concept of common sense. And while some people consider the implications of woke to be the sine qua non of awareness, others, who seem genuinely offended by those implications, consider common sense to be the gold standard. Oh, and I suppose you think that's funny, huh? See, each side is measuring awareness according to their own criteria. And each side presumes the other to be ignorant. Which is to say, ignorant of, or at least unaware of, what their side values and considers worth paying attention to. And all that really means is that some people are more aware of, conscious of, and value certain things rather than others. And vice versa. You get the picture. Interesting. So... Does this mean that our woodcutter is something of an ignorant dolt? Raising a family of dolts? 
either woke elitist snowflakes lacking all common sense, or just a basket of ignorant deplorables brimming with common sense. Who cares? Well, if either one is the case, then we've just turned our metaphor into a contentious modern meme that only divides, denigrates, and diminishes our humanity. I don't like you. I don't like you at all. Part 7 7 Objects in mirror are closer than they appear. Well, here comes that gut punch. Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! The heavyweight champion is taking the mandatory eight count, and Foreman is as poised as can be in a neutral... If we're all willing to see at least some aspect of ourselves in the mirror of this family and these first two sentences of the fairy tale, then regardless of our personal financial status, how woke we think we are, what our educational status might be, and just how sensible, sensitive, or perceptive we know ourselves to be, we might all be missing the boat and just getting by in a sort of chronically poor, spiritual, emotional, or even cognitive sense. Oh, no. Meaning, we're all relatively unconscious, unaware, and ignorant of something we all desperately need more of. Oh, crap. In other words, we all need to wake up to the fact that something, just like our woodcutter's income, that something is in very short supply. Something that none of us have very much of. Not even the rich. Oh, crap! So at least as a hypothesis, this fairy tale metaphor presents us with a collective, cultural, tough love truth. A truth that may be difficult to swallow. And yet, just having a glimpse of the idea, that's enough to start reversing the downward spiral of unconsciousness and lack of awareness we're all suffering from. And that's because... Despite the blow such an observation gives to the ego, the purpose is not to assign blame or insult anyone or induce guilt. No, no, no. In the spirit of objects and mirror are closer than they appear, it's just a small but significant reminder for the sake of our own psychological health and safety. The point being we may not see that we're barely able to feed ourselves what we need to become more conscious and self-aware. In fact, since we're not even sure what that is, we may not even have a taste for it. This fairy tale is reminding us that, for whatever reason, we all need something that, just like a piss-poor cash flow, is in very short supply. Some something we don't even realize is essential to greater consciousness, awareness, and even happiness. Whatever it is, that certain something doesn't come in a bottle, either of spirits or of vitamins. No, no, this is something that money can't buy. And I'm not talking about love. So whether you perceive this missing something to be more literally connected to money and therefore symbolic of willpower, drive, and ambition, or you take a more sympathetic view of our woodcutter in his situation, 
this fairy tale poverty as metaphor of relative unconsciousness, it must still strike an empathic chord. And all the more so if, despite your best and most sincere efforts, you find angst, boredom, or just a naggingly vague emotional and spiritual hunger to be the usual state of affairs in your own life. In fact, many of us, drawn to this tale as adults and who care to think about it, we might judge ourselves to be living lives of quiet desperation, especially while striving for greater consciousness and a deliberate life, or perhaps even because of it since doing so often comes at the expense of economic success and social dominance. And as I've said, this may be true precisely because we have all been forced to unconsciously accept the notion of money as the measure of success, if not satisfaction, in life. $10? Are you kidding me? Part 8 8 Practice, practice, practice. In practical terms, if we're going to find that certain necessary something we need in order to escape the metaphoric poverty of consciousness we're all in, the unconscious is where we've got to look. So there's one commonsensical truth about the unconscious that's worth noting, and that is, if we pay attention to it, simply by refusing to dismiss it out of hand, we actually gain in consciousness and awareness. So what does it even mean to pay attention to the unconscious? Especially if, by definition, it pretty much amounts to everything that we don't even know that we don't know which also includes plenty of awful things we can be sure we would never even want to know. Well, we don't have to come up with a definitive answer. We just need some practical technique. One of the techniques of the ancient Greeks was called a nekia, which ultimately meant calling up ghosts and having them tell you what you needed to know. What? That may sound awfully silly and impractical, Ridiculous, even. And yet, if you approach the idea itself as metaphoric, you can see that it's much less silly than any literal interpretation of an afterlife, and much more concrete than the vague concept of that very thing we call the unconscious. I'll leave a link to the Wikipedia article, which is as good as any place to start reading about it. Thanks. Another more familiar and currently popular technique is meditation. And while there are myriad techniques and forms of meditation, they all involve something like turning off the logical part of your brain and trying to ignore your thoughts. And that, of course, is so much easier said than done, even with an app. Now, believe it or not, paying attention to metaphor especially as we're doing right here and now, well, it's a form of meditation as well. Except, instead of having to ignore your thoughts, you give them free reign. Even allow your logical mind to participate in the process. And that's the practical advantage of metaphor. Metaphor is a deep well of hidden meaning. 
and trying to suss out that meaning amounts to bringing something up and out of the well of the unconscious and into the light of consciousness. Now, finally, on a more collective level, another technique involves paying at least lip service to organized religion or the faith you practice. And that's because religion is the most conventional and orthodox of all prescriptions for paying attention to and properly dealing with the unconscious. No way. We've already seen that those medieval poverty nuts, I mean lovers, and ancestors of our woodcutter, they all sought that necessary something in their own less-than-orthodox practice of religion and spirituality. And they were so convinced they would find it there, they even risked the horrors of the Inquisition. And that's because the middlemen of Vatican orthodoxy, popes and prelates, who've always guaranteed that they've got the unconscious covered and under control, they just weren't doing it for them. Damn! Part 9 9 The Wife and Kids Now there's one more technique of looking into and paying attention to the unconscious that I didn't mention. And it's the most personal technique of all, because it involves listening to that still, small voice of the heart and following your calling, which oddly and ironically enough is exactly what our woodcutter's doing. So I think that kind of brings us to a screeching halt. No matter how we think of this need for greater consciousness or self-awareness, by all accounts, our woodcutter, who's humbly listening to the still small voice of the heart, following his calling, and going off to work every day deep in the unconscious, well, that guy should be prospering. Something obviously is very, very wrong here. What seems to be the problem? Apparently, that certain something necessary for greater consciousness is either so rare and precious it'll always be in ridiculously short supply, or he's just going about it all wrong. And that begs the question, is it our interpretation and assessment of the psychological facts and the metaphors that's so far off base? I mean, are we just thrashing around here? Or is there more going on than we've yet been told? What the hell? Well, in episode 10, we're going to examine the next obvious clue from this sentence. That our woodcutter isn't alone. He has a wife and two kids. And while that might not sound like anything much to go on, it actually gives us another valuable key to the entire fairy tale. A key that's hidden right where the unconscious generally hides the most valuable things, in plain sight. And what I'm talking about is the number four. So, until next time, give a think to what having a four-square family might mean in the context of our fairy tale. And not just ours, any fairy tale. And just know that as a metaphor, it might not be a knockout punch, but it sure packs a wallop. I think he hurt Joe Frazier. I think Joe is hurt. 
Angie Dundee, Ali's trainer, right next to me is saying it. You may hear him. Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! The heavyweight champion is taking the mandatory eight count, and Foreman is as poised as can be in a neutral corner. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. Just remember that if you'd like a free copy of the original manuscript version of the story, the one that I'm using here, just go to the website and send me an email requesting the PDF. Hit the link that says, talk to me. Tell me you want the PDF. Easy peasy. I'll send it to you and put you on my mailing list. The website, of course, is betweenthelines.xyz, where you'll find transcripts for each episode and links to my other websites and podcasts. Christo.art and Christo.com Alrighty then. Ciao a tutti. Ciao, ciao.